to uh, Mark 6, and we will be starting in verse 30 today. If you're new with us, uh, we are just like every other Christian church in that we believe the Bible to be God's Word and that it is the means through which He speaks to us today. So we're excited to hear what God has for us. We've been working our way through the book of Mark. Mark is the shortest of four essentially biographies about Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we're spending this year getting to know Jesus better as we uh, work our way through it. Last uh, week, the gospel of Mark ushered us into the palace of King Herod, where Herod had thrown himself quite the birthday party. He invited all the elites and held the best feast money could buy. Unfortunately, the party ended with John the Baptist's head on a platter. I don't know if you've ever been to a party like that. I have not. This week, we're going to encounter another feast, but this one will be in sharp contrast to the former. Instead of a palace, this feast took place in an open field. Instead of the finest food, this feast consists of bread and fish alone. Instead of a whole uh, who's who gala, this feast was open to anyone and everyone. And instead of grotesque sin, this feast is filled with the revelation of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. The feeding of the 5,000 is uh, without a doubt one of the most famous stories, certainly in the Gospels, if not the whole Bible. It's the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels. And so that should clue us in that this is a story of unique importance. Yet, it's also one of those stories that may not be as clear as we initially thought, in that it points to more than it might seem at first. Perhaps if you've uh, been a Christian a while, you are familiar with the story. In a field on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus used a mere five loaves of bread and two fish to feed a crowd of thousands. That's astonishing in and of itself. And yet, there's more to this story than meets the eye. I want to encourage you this morning, if you feel like you already know the story, to choose to lean in anyway, because maybe God still has something fresh and new for you today. And if you're new to the story in its entirety, then our prayer is that you would come to learn about who Jesus can be to you if you'll trust yourself to Him. The feeding of the 5,000 recalls God's provision of manna in the wilderness back in the Old Testament. It rounds out Moses' prayer of succession, that a successor would come who would shepherd God's people. It demonstrates the fulfillment of God's promise that through the Davidic line would arise a shepherd over God's people forever. And thus, this feast shows Jesus to be the leader of a new exodus, even the long-awaited Messiah. So if you would, with that music in our ears, let's start in verse 30. 
says this, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Jesus had sent the twelve apostles on their first missionary journey, their first trip, in which no longer were they just watching Jesus do ministry, they now had been given His power and authority to do so themselves. Quite naturally, they returned from that trip exhausted. And so Jesus, as He sometimes does, encouraged and in fact took the disciples away for a retreat in order to read and reflect and rest and pray. You'll notice that the passage goes out of its way to, take, to say He was going to take them toward a desolate place. That will become important in a little while. Now, these verses contain no command that we rest, and yet the passage does serve as an example of rest. As we enter the summer months, perhaps you are entering them with fatigue. Maybe this spring you've had to burn the candle at both ends with school and work, or maybe it's been a particular taxing season at the office. Maybe serving the Lord has put you through a particularly demanding time, or perhaps some physical or relational crisis has depleted your tank. Well, then heed Jesus' instructions. Get away for a while. Go to a desolate place and rest. Get away. And as you do, realize that we live in an era in which hobbies often sabotage rest. Have you ever gone on a restful vacation filled with excursions only to need to go back to work to rest? Obviously, that's not the kind of rest we're talking about. We tend, I think, to look for diversions because real rest is often uncomfortable. It causes us to see, perhaps, at that moment how little substance there is in our lives. Get away for some real rest. Devote a few days to sleep, to read, to reflect, to pray, to thank God for what He's done in the last several months, and to ask Him for help with whatever's coming up. The apostles set out for that kind of rest. But look at what happened next, verse 33. Now, many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd because he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. The Sea of Galilee is a large lake, but it's not so large you can't see across it. As Jesus and his apostles got in, that bo- <clears throat> got in that boat and began going to wherever it was that would be less crowded. It seems that people on the shore could simply see into the boat and recognize who was there 
and very much wanted more time with them. And so they ran along the shore. Boats would commonly not go very far out because then they would have to row in if there was not sufficient wind. By this point, Jesus was very popular. And so a crowd of increasing proportions began to assemble and jog along the shore. The apostles needed rest, but sometimes Jesus would push them beyond what they even thought they were capable of themselves. And this would turn out to be one of those occasions. Christian, God will at times do the same thing to you. God will stretch you. God will bring you to the end of yourself so that you might find you can do even more in His strength. Jesus brought the board ashore and boat, and as they exited that boat, they were met with a, a colossal crowd. We'll learn later that there were 5,000 men in this group. And if, in fact, there were women and children also, then this was an enormous crowd of people. It's important that we see that while Jesus had concern for the apostles, He also had compassion for the crowd. And so He didn't force them to leave. He didn't shoo them off. He didn't, he didn't say that more people were not on my calendar. He put plans for rest on hold so that He could minister to this crowd. Now, if you look at verse 34... That verse is quite important for grasping the significance of what this story is all about because it reveals the very heart of Jesus. Notice in particular the word compassion. When Jesus saw this confused, aimless, clamoring crowd, He felt something. It wasn't disgust. Or frustration. It wasn't disappointment or annoyance. It wasn't anger or exasperation. No, Jesus felt compassion. Jesus' attitude towards human brokenness is one of sympathy because his very disposition is to be merciful. Christian, how different, how much more joyful would your walk with God be? If you believed that, if you recognize that Jesus is not chronically disappointed in you, if you came to see that when you're confused or when you've sinned or when you've wandered a slight bit away or when you're not thinking rightly about who Jesus is or what He's done, then His very disposition is not to stiff-arm you. It's not to say, come back when you've got me more figured out. It's not to say, go pay your penance, do your dues, wallow in your guilt, and then I'll welcome you. That's not Jesus. Jesus' disposition is to move toward us in our brokenness. When we fail... He comes closer. When we're confused, He's gentle and lowly. In this particular passage, it tells us that Jesus felt compassion because 
As he looked out on the crowd, he noticed, verse 34, that they were like sheep without a shepherd. Like sheep without a shepherd. You may have noticed several songs that we sang today were about that. Now, to us city folks, that's a rather odd saying. I don't really want to be like sheep without a shepherd. I don't want to be a sheep with a shepherd. It just seems to be a strange saying. But it's one of great biblical importance because one of the central analogies of the people of God throughout the Scriptures is that we are sheep and He is our shepherd. Shepherds were common in Galilee, and perhaps the image was used because it gets so very close to the very essence of how God treats us. Let me see if I can explain. Shepherds would leave their homes and go out and literally live among the sheep. And sheep could be in a in a field this size, gobble up all the grass, and there'd be another field that size just across the parking lot, and they wouldn't go there. They couldn't figure out, oh, we ate all there is for us to live on here and go 50 feet away and find the same thing again. They'd just stay where they were. Isn't that a good picture of what we do when it comes to spiritual food? Shepherds would protect the sheep. They would lead them to water. They would search for ones who had wandered off and would tend to the wounded. A shepherd, you see, stoops down to take care of sheep who are incompetent to take care of themselves. That's what God Himself does for us. As Jesus saw the crowd, he embraced that role of shepherd because that's who he is. That's what's at his very heart. That's why he came. John chapter 10, Jesus is quoted as saying, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's exactly what we see him doing here in Mark 6. He came ashore. He saw their needs. And so he began giving them a spiritual feast. It's interesting to me that when, he said, when it says that he recognized they were like sheep without a shepherd, his immediate response was to begin teaching them. He knew that what they most needed was to feast on God's Word And so, as verse 35 says, he taught them many things, many things. Now, there's not time today to go into all the details of why this is true, but there are several clues in this passage revealing that it's likely this crowd had assembled because they wanted to seek to force Jesus to become their king. Now, not king in a spiritual sense but king in a physical, political sense. The passage goes out of its way at the end to say that it was 5,000 men who had gathered. The passage tells us in a moment that they gathered in groups of 50 and 100. 
tells us that they were coming out and going in. These are all depictions in the Old Testament of what military would do. And so as Jesus saw them, he almost certainly recognized, oh, they've come out because they are confused about my essential mission. They think I've come to assemble an army and battle against Rome and offer political freedom. But friends, that's not why Jesus came. He didn't come to lead an insurrection because his kingdom is not of this world. As Jesus saw the enormous crowd who had run for miles, he knew they fundamentally misunderstood why he came. And yet he did not put his hand to his face and in disgust shoo them away. No, he felt holy sympathy for them. And so precisely when he and the apostles needed rest, he instead labored to teach them rightly who he is. What a picture of what God's like and how Jesus reacts to us in our own misunderstandings of who he is. Jesus is the shepherd of God's sheep, not the usurper of Rome. His aim was to free people from sin, not merely free them from an oppressor. He came to deliver out of a spiritual sense of bondage, not lead a military coup. So for hours and hours and hours, Jesus taught that crowd, and they seemed to have hung on his every word. Church, the primary way Jesus shows compassion for us today is by teaching us the truth. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that God has spoken in many ways, but now in these last days He speaks to us by His Son. And the Scriptures is the record about Him. And it's in them we hear from God and we get the spiritual food we need. That's one of the main reasons we gather on Sunday morning. It's one of the main reasons you're sitting doing right now what is so critically important. We're here in order to hear from our King, King Jesus, because it's His Word that will guide us into all truth. We're always better off when we listen to Jesus. Are you hurting today? Are you confused? Are you exhausted? Are you disappointed? Then come to Jesus. Listen to what he has to say. Obey his voice because he is our good shepherd. Do you remember the words of Psalm 23? I imagine several in the room have it memorized even. It's one of the most famous passages in all the Bible. That passage is a depiction in an ultimate sense of who Jesus is. And I think this text even points us to that. Because in just a moment when we read, notice that it says that he has them sit down in green pastures. It's exactly what Psalm 23 talks about. As the feast continued, the feast of teaching that is, the apostles grew concerned 
that the sun was about to set and the crowd was about to starve. And so they came to him, and check out what happened starting in verse 35. When it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and village and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? One denarii was the equivalent of an average day's work. The, the laborer would earn a denarii a day. And so they're, they're saying, where are we supposed to get two-thirds of a year of income worth of bread? Verse 38, and he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. There it is. Only place I can find in the Gospels where the grass is called green. Now, we don't know what that is. (laughs) We have pretend grass. That stuff is amazing. I want some of that. So they sat down in groups by hundreds, by fifties, taking the five loaves and two fish. He looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave it, gave them to the disciples to set before the people. He divided the fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. While the crowd feasted on Jesus' teachings, their stomachs grew more and more empty. And so this, the rest of this paragraph is, is rather simple. Simply recounts the way in which Jesus miraculously fed them. The apostles came to Jesus with a reasonable proposition. Send them away. Quit talking, Jesus. They got to go eat. But Jesus had something else planned. And so he told them, you, you give them something to eat. They had just been sent by Jesus on a missionary journey. They had been given special apostolic power to do the things that Jesus does. I think he actually meant what he said. You give them something to eat, and yet they didn't get it. They remarked rather sarcastically that that was an impossibility. Despite all the time they'd spent with Jesus, despite having just been used by Him to do things they could never have done by themselves, they didn't yet grasp His full identity and power. Three times in the passage, the Bible highlights the fact that this occurred in a desolate place. The details in a narrative, in a story, are always important. There's no history in the Bible that's there simply to to tell us a, a set of historical facts. No, it's always there to invite us in to know God more, to understand who He is, to 
to enter deeper down into fellowship with him. And so what's up with this detail about the desolate place? Well, it's telling us that this happened in a wilderness area. Recall the book of Exodus, if you're familiar with your scriptures. Recall what happened there. God had rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt, and under Moses' leadership, they were fed daily in the wilderness. The story is designed to tell us that Jesus is a better Moses. Jesus can do what Moses did only better. As Moses' life was drawing to a close, we read in Numbers 27, it'll be here on the screens, that God would appoint a successor. And hear how he's described this prayer that Moses prayed. He's praying for one who would go out before them and come in before them, who will lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep who have no shepherd. That's the first place in the biblical story chronologically that that prayer, that that phraseology is used. Initially, that prayer was fulfilled in the coming of Moses' successor, Joshua. Joshua was initially the one who did that, who led God's people in and out so that they wouldn't be sheep without a shepherd. And yet, in an ultimate sense, that prayer was fulfilled with the coming of Jesus. Jesus, you see, is the better Joshua because he's the eternal shepherd of God's sheep. Joshua led for a while, a few decades, but from now on, Jesus, from then on, in this moment, Jesus is the shepherd. Jesus asked the apostles to gather as much food as they could, which resulted in five loaves of bread and two fish. And somehow, I don't pretend to know exactly how this is possible, but Jesus took those loaves of bread, He lifted them, He blessed God for providing the food, and then He began to break the bread. And in the Greek language this text is written in, the verb tense changes. There's a bunch of verbs in a row that are one-time action. And then we get to him distributing the food, and it says that he, he gave and gave and gave and gave. Somehow God caused miraculously those five loaves to be broken repetitiously, enough to feed an enormous crowd. And enough to have one basket left over for each apostle as an object lesson. That with Jesus Christ, there is no end of provision. In so doing, Jesus served as the ultimate shepherd. After Moses, after Joshua... Later came somebody named David. David is the most famous example in the Old Testament of a shepherd taking care of the sheep, God's flock. And God gave David a promise 
that through him there would come in his line, his Davidic line, one who would be the king and shepherd God's people forever. Here again, this story is pointing to a fulfillment of another Old Testament promise. That as David shepherded the sheep, one greater would come, would come through his line, and that one is Jesus. Jesus would lead a new and better Exodus, a greater Moses, a better Joshua, a truer David. In that way, this is a fulfillment of Ezekiel chapter 34, 23, which says this, I will set over, this is God speaking, I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them and be their shepherd. I know it's early, but that is astonishing. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before this event, God promised that He would send one. He Himself would send one who would feed His sheep. And here it is, Mark 6. That one is Jesus. Now, if I put all that in contemporary terms, I think we would put it like this. Brothers and sisters, in Jesus, we will find all that we ever need. In Jesus, we will find all that we ever need. Jesus is the Christ, and it is through Him that all of God's people are satisfied. In verse 34, we read these powerful words, and they all ate and were satisfied. What an astonishing picture. In Jesus Christ, there is divine power and tender compassion wed. And so out of that pathetic five loaves, that crowd of 5,000 ate. And they ate and were satisfied. Why? Because Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the King. He can give them everything they need. And He does the same for us. He's the long-awaited Messiah, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Alpha and Omega, the sovereign King and the slaughtered Lamb. He's the Christ, the Creator and Sustainer, Savior, Lord, Friend, High Priest. Jesus is the Christ, and through Him, all God's people are satisfied. This means that our spiritual longings and needs are met by Jesus. It means that our physical longings are met by Jesus. It means that our relational and emotional needs are met by Jesus. This crowd was satisfied in His teaching, and they were satisfied in His feeding of them. That's what Jesus does. He brings satisfaction to His people. Now, He doesn't give us everything we want, because much of what we want turns out to not be very good for us. But He does give us what we need. This story you see then is about far more than simply giving a crowd a meal. It's about showing in literally one paragraph so much of what's come before us in the Old Testament. 
and showing its fulfillment in Jesus Christ, and even pointing ahead to the end of Mark where Jesus establishes the Lord's Supper. Fascinatingly, the same series of verbs is used in the exact same order to describe the way Jesus' actions took the bread. He blessed it. He broke it. He gave it. Same thing is said to describe the Lord's Supper. This is a foreshadowing of what we'll see together in a few months. The provision of bread in the wilderness harkens back to Moses and Joshua and David, and it brilliantly shows Jesus is the Messiah who's leading God's people on a new and better exodus, not merely out of Egypt, but out of bondage to sin, and not merely into Israel, but into heaven itself. Church, Jesus is the Christ, so through Him all God's people are satisfied. And so I must ask you today, are you feasting on Jesus, enjoying what He's provided for you? Are we as a church sustained by Jesus as He meets our needs in His timing and in His ways? Are we content with Jesus fulfilling our wants, our needs, and leaving at times our wants? Beloved, Jesus possesses all the resources of heaven and earth. His power is sufficient for you. If we seek satisfaction in money and possessions, we may gather a lot, but we will never be satisfied. If we seek meaning in people, then we might have a lot of relationships but will never be satisfied. We must come to Jesus. We must come to Jesus. You may have heard Jonathan, the name Jonathan Edwards. Unfortunately, he's broadly known today for only one sermon he ever gave. And if you went to school, high school in the United States, it's likely you even read that sermon. It's called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It wasn't the only sermon he ever gave. Let me read you a message I found late last night that describes this text. The most pleasant Accommodations, fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows, but God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. His point is, God gives us many good things, but the very best thing is God Himself. Beloved, fullness of heart, head, stomach, and soul all come from Jesus. In Jesus, may we all be satisfied by trusting Him, by relying on Him, by being content in Him, 
by worshiping Him, by speaking of Him to each other, and by feasting on the forgiveness that is ours in Christ. Jesus is the Christ. So all God's people are satisfied in Him. Will you stand with me and let's pray.